Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for coming on the Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am Sierra, and I have with me Sarah from Bear Institute. I know a lot of people have heard of Bear Institute. They are a nationwide organization that is geared towards just changing the way that America and politicians view anything carceral, um, anything with the children and, and the incarceration incarceration system. And Vera has done a lot of amazing work and, and even included in North Carolina. And then I also have Sam with us from Texas, and she's going to speak about just how they have been able to change some things in Texas, because being down South is not easy. It's really racist and biased. And so it takes a lot of movement work and a lot of teamwork to be able to get major wins and change things in the Southern states. So without further ado, um, I will introduce Sarah, and she will just tell you a little bit about herself and Vera and the things that they work on. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. My name is Sarah Minion. I work at the Vera Institute of Justice. As Sarah said, Vera is a national um, research and advocacy organization. We've been around for over 60 years, and you know we played an instrumental role in the first bail reform 60 years ago. And since then, we've just been involved with working with local community advocates and system actors and government stakeholders to ask important questions about how they use their criminal legal system and think about how they can do things differently and and create true safety for everyone in the community, right? We know how much the system has been used as a really racist arm. And so instead saying, how can we create change both locally, statewide, and and nationally to to really do things differently. And I, over the past few years, have had the pleasure of working on the In Our Backyards project that was focused on reducing incarceration in small cities and rural communities that often don't get as much attention, right? When we think about mass incarceration, people often think about Rikers Island in New York or Chicago. And in fact, actually, small cities and rural communities have higher rates of incarceration. And, you know, we can talk more about why that is, but the reality is, it's like so many other issues in our national politics, rural places, smaller places, don't get the same investment and the same attention. So our project was started to, to try to address that and to, and to bring attention to, and resources, right, to the organizers like Sierra, like Sam, who are working in smaller cities and saying, you know, reform can happen here too. And when we invest in organized opposition, we can win. And so I'm really excited to be joined too by Sam Benavides. Is that how I say your last name? Okay, let me re-say that. I'm really excited to be joined by Sam Benavides from Mano Amiga, who I'll let you introduce yourself, Sam. Thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you so much, Sierra, for inviting us on. My name is Sam Benavides. My pronouns are she, hers. I am the communications director with Mano Amiga. We are a criminal justice reform nonprofit. Uh, we do a lot of other things based in central Texas uh, in San Marcos. So it's right between San Antonio 
and Austin. And we always say there's a lot of organizing going on in San Antonio, a lot of organizing going on in Austin, not a whole lot going on in between. And so we aim to fill that rural gap between the two big cities and fighting to create this corridor of resistance. And so we, there's four counties. Right now we are working in Hayes County. We have done a little bit of work in Caldwell County, and then we eventually want to branch out into Guadalupe and Comal counties as well. Um, we do a lot of criminal justice reform work, but we actually started as an immigrant rights organization fighting against Abbott's deportation, ICE raids back in 2017, shortly after Trump took office. Um, and so a lot of community members got together and asked themselves what they would do if that happened in their community. And they started organizing deportation defense campaigns. They won five out of six of them and then realized very quickly with the passing of SB4 that so many people were entering the jail to deportation pipeline as a result of really petty traffic infractions or really petty crime. And so Mano Amiga decided to start organizing for systemic change that keeps people out of the legal system altogether and benefits citizens and non-citizens alike. And so that's the work that we've been doing. And in doing this work, we found ourselves also doing a lot of police accountability work and jail advocacy. But I'll talk more about that as, as time goes. Well, Sam, can you kind of touch on the deportation, well, the ICE that they had and the delay, the, the setup that they had? Because we see our people in jail cells and in prison cells. But when it comes to immigrants, they like to put them literally in cages and they're on top of one another even with children. So can you kind of speak and give like the audience just like maybe a visual of how it is down there in Texas when we mm-hmm. were going through that in 2017? Because we see pictures, but mm-hmm. just actually having someone to explain, you know, what was really going on and what that was like. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So here in San Marcos, Texas, we don't have a detention facility. What they do is as before allowed law enforcement and ICE to collaborate in a way that they never did before. So a lot of these people, when we talk about the jail to deportation pipeline, they're being booked for this this like petty offense. And then once they bail out or bond out before they're picked up, they are still held and the sheriff will give a call to ICE and say, you have 36 hours to pick this person up. And so they'll hold that person for another 36 hours before they're transferred to the detention center, which the nearest one is in Pearsall, which is about an hour away or so, uh, just south of San Antonio. And so that's how it works here. And so I wasn't around when they were doing those deportation defense campaigns, but that is what it looks like here in in San Marcos. And that's why we call it the jail to deportation pipeline, because it's quite literally, you are in the jail and then Sheriff Cutler calls ICE once you've already bonded out and yeah it's really awful and I'll just add on that you know I think most people think about ICE detention and they think like oh lord it's happening in some awful prison somewhere far away and it has nothing to do with us but the reality is is a lot of people who are in ICE detention are actually being held in county jails and a lot of counties like There's over 3,000 counties in the country, and nearly every single one has its own jail. And that jail is run by local decision makers, right? So often what you see is local sheriffs or jailers saying, I can make a little bit of money here by renting beds to ICE. 
And what that does is then it ties up a county's financial well-being, right? They're saying, we're going to balance our budget by the revenue we're getting from continued criminalization of immigrants. And so often this is happening right in people's backyards without them even really knowing about it. And so, you know, their, their taxpayer dollars are paying for this. This is local. They're local police. They're local sheriffs their local government. So I think it's really important just to understate how, you know, it's not just in these facilities far away, it's actually happening in in a lot of local jails. Right. And I know that this election season that just passed in North Carolina, that was our main goal was to get different sheriffs in because a lot of sheriffs were agreeing to ICE. And then the candidates that didn't want to agree to it were sabotaged. So that just goes to show you like how much political power that a lot of these state actors hold. And and I don't know if a lot of people know, but your sheriffs, your local sheriffs is what runs your jail. All your jails are ran by the sheriff. So they have a lot to do with deportation and calling ICE in. And I know we had a big deal with that in Alamance County because of the sheriff there. So, I mean, I think people need to just know that it's not only black and brown. It's, you know, anybody that is considered immigrant or not from America, they don't want you here. That's just what it is. And they will do whatever they can to get you out of here or nonetheless keep you in prison. And so uh, we have to do better as the community is making sure everybody's safe, not just black and brown or, but just that everybody is safe um, when it comes to keeping our people safe from state actors. Because to me, those are the most scariest people out here. Like people say murderers are, but no, your state actors literally and your politicians are the most scariest people out here because they hold so much power over your life and your community. And, you know, we see such violence in these facilities, right? Um, Often at the hands of government actors. And I think just to add on to that Alamance County reference, so Alamance County is very famous for their sheriff who has been quoted as saying really racist things, going after Mexican immigrants. And what is worth, I think, noting about Alamance County is that they're also trying to build a massive new jail. And they're saying, we need this new jail because we need more space. Why? Because so much of what they're doing is incarcerating. Well, one, you know, pretrial detention in Alamance was really, really rampant. They had a a lawsuit challenging their use of money bail, and they were actually forced to change their practices because of the results of that litigation. And as Sierra said, you know, unfortunately, what we've heard is in the aftermath of that decision, system actors, local elected officials are trying to undermine that at every step that they can and not actually follow what a court has told them that they have to do around you know, providing people meaningful inquiries into whether they can afford a money bail set on their case or not. And so now you have this jail that is, you know, super overcrowded because it's filled with people who can't pay their money bail and all these people who are being criminalized for just being immigrants here. And so now the county is asking their taxpayers to pay for an even bigger carceral facility when so many of these folks really should not be there in the first place. Right. And then it goes to you want to build a bigger jail, but then we have a shortage of correctional officers state and well in jails and in prisons across the state. So what sense would it make to build a brand new jail when you're probably not even going to have the staff 
you know what I'm saying, to staff it. In that case, in Alamance County, really what he's saying is basically I want a big enough jail to hold immigrants and <laughs> disproportionate people. And that's that's what we have to stop because I need people to understand that this is your tax dollars. The money that they take out of your paycheck every time you get paid is what is going to jails, what's going to prisons, what's going to the courtrooms when they have trials. That is your money that they're using to do these things. And so we need to get a better handle on what they're using our money for. And so I took a budget class last year to really dive into the budget. And let me remind everybody, you can always make a budget request for your county at any time. And I, I would suggest that everybody does that to see what state actors are doing with your money. And you can get a breakdown as to exactly where the money is going, how much money they're asking for, and if they're using that money for the things that they said they were going to use it for. And nine times out of 10, you're going to see that they're not. Um, I know I read an article where um, a lot of the sheriffs were cheating with the the food. They were only, I think it was a dollar a day they were spending or 70 some cent. And I think that was like allowance of $3. So that means they were making $2 and then feeding the people incarcerated, nothing. So it's really important that we pay attention to what they're doing with our tax dollars because it's their tax dollars. It's ours. And so in order for us to stop that and start taking the money and divesting it back in the communities, because I want y'all to know that they have tore down our villages. That's why people are like, well, what happened to the villages? Well, state actors have come in and tore them down and built prisons and jails. And that's what your village is now, technically. So we have to do better about bringing our own villages back in our communities and making sure that they're resourced. Um, I want to hit on where Vera has come in and helped uh, Wilson County, who didn't have a public defender's office. So let me remind you, a lot of the rural counties don't even have public defender's office. So what that means for you is if you go to jail, it's hard to get a lawyer. You have to get a paid lawyer. And we know that most paid lawyers are going to handle their paid clients before they handle an indigenous client. So you don't have the option to wait for a public defender to come and represent you. You got to wait for a paid attorney. And what we were finding out in Wilson that they weren't even showing up. So people were just sitting in jail pretrial for maybe a larceny. And they're sitting there for months because they don't have anybody to go represent them in court. So that's where Vera has come in and has helped us a lot with being able to change, do more sight and release in Wilson in the small rural counties where they don't have public defenders and to kind of depopulate the jail. And that went very well. And so I, I advise a lot of people to start seeing about the public defender's office and maybe trying to organize where you can get a holistic public defender's office. And that's another thing I want to touch on is all public defenders are not for you. And I'm not saying they're bad. We have to remember that they have can have up to 200 cases on one person. And you have what if you have 200 murder cases? Murder, murders take two years to even get through trial. So that, that's a lot on one person. And they are also underfunded as well. And so we have to do better about making sure they are funded to making sure that they are well holistically because they go through a lot. I mean, you know, they're, they're dealing with other people's trauma and trying to get them free and fighting for their life. And that tends to take a lot out of them. So just making sure that they have good holistic public defenders offices in the rural counties, making sure that the public defenders are really being advocates because public defenders, they are your advocates. They are advocating for your life and making sure that they are advocates. Because we do have a lot of people who are in prisons and jails now who are wrongfully convicted, who never committed a crime. 
and they end up taking plea deals or whatever, and they're in prison for 20 and 30 years until they can find somebody who, you know, really goes through their case and figure out they're innocent. So I did want to touch on that. Sarah, if you want to speak more to what Bear done. Yeah, I think, I mean, what you said, Sarah, is so real, unfortunately, is that the system relies on the fact that public defenders are so overworked that they can't take everyone to trial, right? It relies on the fact that public defenders' offices are so underfunded and, and district attorneys' offices are funded well above that, right? And that's how they they move people through getting pleas, right? We know that if you're detained pre-trial, you are more likely to take a plea because you're trying to get out. You are more likely to receive a harsher sentence. And these outcomes are even worse if you are Black, right? And so having adequate defense before trial can actually help, you know, make the case to a judge that you should be out at home awaiting and fighting your case with your attorney. And what we see when people are able to actually fight their cases and take it through to trial, either the charges will be dismissed altogether because there's not enough evidence, or they'll be dropped to a much lesser charge with a much lesser consequence, right? And I think Sam really is the one who should speak to the public defense campaign because Mano Amiga led a three, four-year effort and recently got a nearly $12 million investment in a holistic public defender's office. So Sam, you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, thank you. I want to backtrack just a little bit because Sierra, what you were saying about the jail being understaffed, I think is just fascinating because we're having the same issue here. And we, for the longest time, our understanding before we found out that it was understaffed, our understanding was it's overcrowded and we're out spending millions outsourcing because y'all are arresting people for petty crimes. Y'all are holding people pre-trial. Our court system is so backlogged. That was always our understanding until this one journalist who we really admire and really trusted wrote a story about it or was writing a story about it being understaffed and how that's why they're spending so much money outsourcing. And we were like, hey, ask them how many empty beds there are, if that's really the case. Sure enough, there are about 400 empty beds due to them being so understaffed and having to outsource. And so we, yeah, we're having the same issue here and found out recently that that is not unique to Hayes County. It's actually a national issue. So really interesting that y'all are dealing with that too. But to talk about the public defender office a little more. Yeah, we started that fight back in 2018 before I even joined Manamiga back in 2019. And so by the time I joined, they'd already been fighting that fight for a year. And it took long enough that our co-founder, Karen Munoz, was able to start that fight, go to law school, get a whole law degree, and be sworn in as an attorney before they actually established a public defender office. So it took literally four years. And I think one of the biggest, I wouldn't call it an obstacle necessarily, but something we had to put a lot of effort into was public education, of course. The average person doesn't understand what the difference between a public defender office and the court-appointed attorney system is. So having to do that contrast. And then, of course, mobilizing dozens of community members to speak at commissioner's court and the Vera Institute of Justice the Hayes County Jail dashboard that they created, I think played a huge role in showing how many people, literally 75% most days, sometimes up to 80% were being held pre-trial, 
legally innocent individuals. And so their dashboard being able to expose that, I think, played a huge and crucial role, not just to the public education component, but also speaking to commissioners about that. And then, of course, exposing the experiences of directly impacted individuals. We are in contact with people who have been incarcerated in the Hayes County Jail. Um, one of them is Cyrus Gray, who now works for Mount Amiga, and I can talk a little bit more about him and his case, and his friend, Miles Martin, who was in the Hayes County Jail for 30 months, and he did not hear from his attorney for a year. We just had him speak at our student chapter meeting last week, and it was just really horrific that he would contact his attorney over and over and just be ignored for almost an entire year. He thought, you know, all to be uh, found innocent of the crime of which he was accused. And so he thought, you know, I'm not going to be in here for more than a week, two weeks. He was in there for 30 months. And then, of course, Cyrus, he is also accused of a crime that he did not commit. He had his jury trial over the summer. It ended in a mistrial. He's now bonded out, still working on trying to get that case done and over with. But his first attorney was a court attorney who was trying to get him to take a plea deal because as we know, these attorneys are paid by the case. And so the longer, the quicker that they can get this case over with, get a plea deal without even opening the case and looking at the facts of the case, the more quickly they're able to get their check and move on to the next person. And so Cyrus was subjected to that with his first attorney, Todd Dudley, who interestingly enough was the only member of the Hayes County Criminal Justice Coordinating Committee Commission to vote against a public defender office. And he was pressuring Cyrus to take a plea deal after not having looked at his case and was saying, by the time you get out, you'll be my age. I'm still partying. I'm still out here, you're like getting girls. Really disgusting. And so Cyrus demanded another attorney and he did get another attorney who was better, but still moving really slow until we, Manomiga brought on Amy Camp and she was able to really invest a lot of her time and energy into pressuring Cyrus's attorney to do his job more swiftly and get Cyrus to trial, get his bond reduction hearings. And yeah, and now, so going back to the public defender office, exposing these kinds of stories, I think was crucial to the public education component and convincing our commissioners that this was absolutely necessary for our community. And so now we're also pushing to have it established in Caldwell County, which We'll see how long that takes, but trying to play these counties off of each other. Yeah, and I can definitely speak to that because I'm directly impacted. My husband's incarcerated and had a public defender and he forced him into a plea, told him he would not go to trial because the co-defendants were going to testify. And just me and other people looking at the discovery is like, how did you not go to trial? Like he probably wouldn't have been even found guilty. But the lawyer was like, well, I'd rather for you to come home because first he was charged with capital murder and he pled down to second degree murder. And the public defender was like, well, I'd rather see you come home because if you don't take this plea, you're going to go to court and you're going to basically say you're going to be there for the rest of your life. So he was forced into taking that plea. So yeah, that's, that's the real big issue these days is them forcing people into pleas because for one, if they go to trial, then they know it's going to cost more money. And so it's easier to say, hey, take this plea deal than to actually let them have their due process and actually go through the court, making sure that um, everything is played out in court and not you 
playing the ju the jury for them. So that's very important to have a holistic public defender's office because if not, then I don't think there's so many people that are just sitting in, and it seems like the jail time is getting longer. Like some people would sit in jail for a few months, then it went to two years. Some people have been in jail for six years. So it's it needs to be a better way of sourcing the people through the system and making sure that if they are innocent, that they're not sitting in jail because it's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. But in America, you're guilty until proven innocent. And so a lot of times you're not, it, it takes a while before you can prove your innocence here. So that's important. And that's, that's amazing that y'all were able to do that. Can you speak a little more to like, what is the holistic public defender's office look like? Because I know a lot of people are probably like, hmm, holistic. But kind of like just speak to what would be the difference between a regular public defender's office and a holistic public defender's office. Because I think that that could be a model for all of the states to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in Hayes County, for its entire existence, we only had the court appointed attorney model of representation and we had no public defender office, much less a holistic public defender office. And, you know, the Constitution. And this is something that we would say when we were trying to do like that public education component of, you know, just trying to get people educated on what a public defender office is because your average person, it's, I feel it's so deep in the weeds of the legal system for a lot of people. And so we always say, you know, the constitution grants you your right to an attorney if you cannot afford one, but it does not guarantee that you will have a quality attorney who actually wants to fight for your freedom and so the way that we usually explain it is, you know, we have the court appointed attorney system and these lawyers have their own private practices, right? And so they have their own private practices. So on top of being an attorney, they're also a business owner and they're really working on their own and don't have that, you know, whole team the way that a district attorney's office does a whole team of lawyers who are able to help each other out. And so these court appointed attorneys also work across multiple counties. So they'll take cases and clients that span across multiple counties and they'll take on overwhelming caseloads. And on top of representing often too many clients, they are business owners working to keep the lights on, right? And so we also talked about how they're paid by the case. So this is why we see so many of them wanting to put just minimal effort into their clients' cases. Many of them not even looking at the facts of their case before pressuring them into taking plea deals so that they can close this case out and move on to the next one. We also see that these attorneys often lead to an overwhelming amount of people being held pre-trial because, as I said, their cases span across multiple counties. Those counties don't really communicate with one another as far as court dates. And so they'll have a single attorney will have court dates for multiple clients in one day. And so that will lead to them having to reset their court dates over and over when they're often prioritizing the clients who are paying them directly versus those clients who the state is paying them or the county is paying them to represent. And so contrasted with the holistic defense, to us, holistic means that you have a whole team fighting for you. You have your public defender fighting for your criminal, fighting against your criminal charge. You have a caseworker who's working to find you the care and resources that you deserve. And then when necessary, you have your immigration lawyer focusing on immigration implications of your case. And so this is what we mean when we say holistic defense. It means that you have a whole team of lawyers fighting for you rather than 
this court appointed lawyer who is on their own and taking cases, often too many cases across multiple counties. Yeah, that is, that's amazing. And I think that that needs to be everywhere because it's just so many people that are not only falling victim to the state actors of the prosecution side, but also mm -hmm. tend to be victims of the public defender side because I mean you have some public defenders that really fight for their clients but then you have some to me it seems like it's just literally a job to them and so when you're representing somebody's life you really have to take into consideration what type of fight you're going to fight to make sure that that person if they didn't commit that crime you know actually doesn't go to prison or if they did not getting an inhumane sentence because we also like to just sentence like throw people away I mean you know, now we're just getting to the point where we're realizing that we shouldn't be throwing juveniles away, like giving them life without parole. And so I think that that's really important that a lot of other states should even just try to get into the holistic public defender's office that way, just to, just to keep people from cycling in and out of the system. Um, can you talk to speak to any anything else that y'all have done down there in Texas? Because I know Texas is it's just as politically sour. <laughs> as it is in North Carolina, anything Absolutely. that Southern is so, it's, it's, it takes a lot for us to really get change and movement going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And just to backtrack a little bit, you were saying it's like really important to talk about how a lot of public defenders are just not great attorneys. And it's wild because growing up, I always felt like, or when I first got into this work, I thought, you know, public defenders are the good guys who have compassion and don't want to see people go to jail for long periods of time, especially when it's unjust. And then just learning about the reality and how so many public or so many defense attorneys here do not care about their clients. And exactly, you said it perfectly, they just see it as a job. It's really disheartening and something that we work really hard to bring attention to in Hayes County. And then as far as talking about other campaigns that we worked on, there's a lot. We do a lot of just trying to pass policies that keep our neighbors out of the legal system. And so that starts in 2020 when we started pushing, or I guess it was 2019, we started pushing for site and release. I mentioned earlier, we focused mostly on deportation defense campaigns um, during our founding. And then with the passing of SB4, it really intensified the jail to deportation pipeline because now you had, we call it the racist show me your papers law because you had officers collaborating with ICE in a way that they never had before. And so forced immigration organizations like ours to do criminal justice reform work as well that benefits citizens and non-citizens alike. And so the first initiative we started pushing for was site and release. We started that fight in 2019 and that's when I joined Mano Amiga. That was the first campaign I ever worked on. And it was really really incredible to see how mobilizing your community members, engaging in this public education and getting them to show up really does get you the wins and change that you need. It's, it sounds cliche, but we always say when we show up, we win because it's true. It's happened multiple campaigns. You just need to get your community to show up and your local representatives will succumb to their pressure, especially at the local level. Maybe not the state level because Ken Paxton is insane. Um, but, yeah. but at the local level, you just need to get your community to show up. And so we started that fight in 2019. And one of our biggest talking points during that campaign 
was we found out that in the year prior, in 2018, although officers in the state of Texas since 2007 have had the option to issue citations instead of immediately arresting people for certain low-level offenses, of course, a lot of officers were picking and choosing when they used that option. And in 2018, we saw that in San Marcos, our police department did not issue a citation to a single Black person. Out of the 72 instances in which they were all eligible for a citation rather than arrest, every single one of them was arrested. So it just proved what we already knew, that they were issuing these citations in a racially biased way. And so we brought attention to that during the push for site and release. And we, I think the first event that we had was a city council meeting where they were going to appoint their new interim chief of police. And so we talked about that statistic and tried to get counsel to get him to commit to implementing site and release and using it more. And so he said, I'll do whatever the council wants. We gave them a few months. Their site and release numbers were still terrible. They were still arresting individuals when they were eligible for citation. And so that just further proved that we needed an ordinance that requires them to issue a citation during all of these eligible circumstances, because obviously their discretion was only benefiting people who looked like them. And so after about a year long campaign, San Marcos became the first city in the state of Texas to pass a site and release ordinance. And so other cities had what are called uh, resolutions, which is more of a cultural suggestion. It's basically council telling the police department, hey, we looked at this policy. We would really appreciate if you started using it more, but an ordinance is city law. And so it requires officers to issue citations during these eligible uh, circumstances. And now we see cities across the state trying to implement that. We know that in Houston, I believe that their mayor signed an executive order putting that into place. I don't know what the difference in power between an executive order and an ordinance is, but still really surreal that we have the fourth largest city in the nation implementing uh, and specifically citing the San Marcos model of site and release. And we know that in San Antonio, they were also trying to fight for site and release. They got a couple of council members who are progressive elected. I don't know the details, but it obviously didn't work out because they ended up having to do it via a ballot initiative. And so that is officially on the ballot for the upcoming election. So San, Mar I mean, San Antonio voters will be able to make the decision on whether to pass site and release, um, I believe this May. That is amazing. I know in North Carolina, we are currently working on a new traffic. Instead of police stopping you for minor traffic, it could be like, I guess, somebody from the community that you hire. Um, and so we were trying to like get feedback. And I think the first place we were talking about doing it is Greenville. And so you have to educate your community because when they, when they first hear certain things, they're like, oh, I don't know about that because that's how they were. They was like, well, I wouldn't pull over for somebody that's not a police officer. And I'm like, would you would rather would you rather be pulled over by somebody that's not a police officer and giving you a citation or be pulled over with a police officer and then you could die? I mean, I, I would take being pulled over by somebody that's not a police officer and you're just giving me a citation. Why not pull over for him? You know what I mean? At least you know that you don't have to worry if you're going to die during a traffic stop. You know what I mean? Right. Like just really, I think, educating the community because they've been so brainwashed and transformed into what America wants people to think 
how -hmm. everything is supposed to go. And that's not in understanding that we can protect our own communities and people. We make us safe and that we we need more or less policing because police have not done anything, you know, at all. And so I, I hear a lot of people say, well, if the police don't come out, what, what's going to happen? Well, that's why you have to train your communities in conflict and resolution and restorative justice and restorative healing so that we all can learn how to resolve conflicts without either calling the police, two, killing one another, or three, just doing things that we shouldn't be doing to one another. But being able to resolve that conflict between each other and not involving outside parties, I think is extremely important to get our communities back to where we are safe and understanding that we don't need governmental systems to police us. We don't need them to control our lives. But that, you know, we just need them to support, not come in and, you know, tear up everything like they do. So it's, it's just really important to communicate to your, your communities and to educate them on a lot of things that they might be weary of. Yeah, I think just on that note, it's so hard for people to imagine what's possible beyond the confines of what already exists and what they already know. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so often these visions for the future are unfortunately stifled because it's like, well, this is what we've all, we've already, you know, what, this is what's best on offer is, is a jail cell for our, our community members. And I've unfortunately heard so many people say like, well, you know, at least my sister didn't overdose that night because she was in jail. And it's like, well, why is that the best thing we have to offer our loved ones? Right. And just back on the site and release topic, Emancipate and um, the NAACP of Wilson County and the Community Alliance for Public Education in Wilson County banded together over the last few years to to really push their community to to think about how they use incarceration and how that is actually impacting generations, right? Um, Sierra, I'm sure you can speak more to this, but how, you know, they, they took this survey, y'all took a survey of kids in school and asked, you know, how many of y'all have loved one who was incarcerated in the last year? And then they saw how that impacted anxiety, depression, food insecurity, right? All of these cascading consequences for their children in their community. And that was a way that they were able to be like, we need to do better for our kids. So often I think people can um, rationalize in their mind, like, well, that person committed a crime. They deserve to be there, even though so many people in jail, most of them are there pre-trial. They haven't actually been convicted. But when you think about the kids, I think for a lot of people, it's easier to to be like, oh, wait, this isn't right. And in the same way that Mano Amiga did site and release, um, Emancipate, NAACP, and CAPE, you all had your own, it wasn't an ordinance, but you worked with your sheriff and your chief to issue a um, site and release directive. And as a result, y'all reduced the Wilson County jail population by over 50% in the years that we've been working with you guys, which is really amazing. And it's a really amazing cultural shift in the department. Um, That's a testament to all of your work. And I think, you know, it's also important to note how the change in an administration, right? If you got a new chief, if you got a new sheriff, right? What's going to happen? Because it's not actually codified as a policy in the same way that in San Marcos, they made this a, an ordinance. And so I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I'm saying this is, you know, these things that it's like, we 
we need to be thinking long term about how we are really codifying and expanding the things that are good and that are working in our communities and, and also bringing it to other places, right? Sierra, you guys are thinking about how to, you know, there's so many other communities in North Carolina that that could do what what y'all did in Wilson. Yeah, because we have so much rule and, and that side of North Carolina doesn't have a lot of help. Like there's not a lot of organization going on down there. And so by us just being able to come to Wilson and, and help change those things was a big difference. And I think it also helped Wilson be able to organize in a movement way to move them where they need to be. And so we're currently working on that with a lot of the counties in the Eastern part is just trying to teach them how to organize and get movements together so that they can stand up for what they need in the Eastern part of North Carolina, because it's very rural. So I think that that's very important. Sarah, can you talk a little bit more about like the Justice League and all about your like how you train folks to organize? Because I think that's something, you know, so many people in in smaller cities and, and rural places, they become organizers because they are like, let me deal with this injustice in my community. And I think have like often there's just not enough resources for community training and for, you know, sharing knowledge that others have built around organizing. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about the Justice League and, and how y'all have, have done that. So believe it or not, I started as a Justice League member before I was hired on with Emancipate. And so what we do with the Justice League members is a lot of them are already doing the work, but we come behind them and show them more skills they could use and also just re-energize them. Because sometimes, you know, you can do that work so much that and you don't if you don't have enough support and, and push behind you, it can be very draining and then it could just make you feel like, well, what am I doing this for? And so I felt like that's how it was for a lot of our Eastern County people. So we have, we have a lot of people from all over North Carolina, but we do have a lot in the East. And so we have the Justice League to help motivate them more to say, hey, you're not alone. Look, we have this, you know, this cohort that if anybody has something going on, we have like a Google, we have text messages, so we can all support one another. So if somebody has a question or they have a situation going on in one of the counties, they'll put it in our, our chat and then we'll band together to go help them push whatever that they're working on. So it's really just to give them more momentum, give them more ability to say, hey, you know, I, we can do this. We can do this. The same thing they're doing in Raleigh and Durham, we could do it in the Eastern part. And just really just being that force behind them to say, keep going, don't stop, keep going. We're in this together. This is all the same movement. And so we just uplift even more the work that they're doing to make sure that they have support. Because if you don't have support behind you and this movement, you're not going to get anywhere. So just really supporting them and letting them know that we're here. We have the resources, you know, whatever you need. And we work together. Like if somebody in the Western part has an organ, uh, has an event, we'll try to all go to that event and just be supportive and be there and show that this is a movement and this is what we're here to do. That is really incredible. I feel like it kind of reminds me of immediately after Sight and Release was passed in 2020, we saw cities across the state, Dallas, Laredo, San Antonio, Austin, Houston, all these cities and their organizations trying to mobilize and organize around Sight and Release. And then I don't know if it was the pandemic or just something that just drained their energy, but I don't think a lot of the cities saw it through unfortunately and 
I think that's just incredible that y'all do that. I wish we had the capacity and I wish Texas wasn't so damn big <laughs> that it was like impossible to drive all the way to Laredo, like 250 miles down. Um, so that's really incredible. Yeah, thank you. I, I mean, we just, well, we have to, because I felt like we felt like in, in the Eastern, especially in the Eastern, the Western has finally got enough support behind them, but the Eastern was like really struggling and they had no support and other movements had to take from, from them to try to go help them. And so just trying to build each community up in itself so that they can support their own selves and say, Hey, you know, we can do, it's really important because a lot of, a lot of communities feel like they can't, you know what I mean? They just don't feel like they can, can do enough to make a change. And so just reminding them that as long as we all pull together as a state, if we're in this movement, that you, you can get a change. You just got to band together. Yeah, I think people forget that, you know, well, not forget, but de people definitely don't forget. I think <laughs> it's these local power, like local power holders are so forceful and often use pretty like dirty tactics and it can be easy to to just bow out because it is really hard and it does you know it impacts people's lives and so often people aren't being paid to do this right and they have other jobs and they have kids and it's exhausting and and I think that the system relies on the belief that people will burn out and that they won't you know keep fighting and as one of the mono amigo organizers I've heard say the squeaky wheel gets the grease and I think that is something that we all can do is support each other to be like, no, one more, let's keep going. Let's keep trying. The people who do make these decisions, it's just, it's a person, right? We need to identify, you know, it's, it's not like this, it can be so easy, mass incarceration. You think about it. It's this massive problem, national, millions of people are in prisons and wow. But when you really isolate it down into your community and you say, okay, this is my county jail and we're, ha we have, this many people in there on a given day. And these are the individual people who are making the decisions that are driving folks into that jail, right? It's the district attorney. That's one person and their line staff. It's these judges, right? Maybe that's five people. It's these county commissioners who are paying for this system. And maybe that's three people. Maybe it's six people, right? Depending on your community. When you distill it down to individuals right and you say we can change these people's minds or we can they lean on us to elect them they need us yes. and so what is the cost that we can create for them these individuals these people who are influenced by people right I think that is super super important and can be hard to remember when you're in like the forest when you're in the um, trees of it all you know to forget that forest of like okay these are individuals who are accountable to their own self-interest, whether that's getting reelected, whether it's, you know, a local business person who donates a lot of money to their campaign, you know, whatever it is. And so uh, that was a long tangent, but just going back to saying like people make choices that uphold the system and people can change that. I think people, I, well, I, for so many years, even before I got into the criminal justice, I don't think that I understood fully that I have a voice and that my voice counts. And that if we all band together and say, hey, you know, we're not going to stand up for this. This is our tax dollars. This is our, these are our communities and really stand up because I, 
like you said, the system will do so much to seem to, to make to break you down and make it seem like this is just not going to be achievable or attainable. And so you have to always, when they push you down, you got to get back up and keep trying. And so that's another thing that the Justice League does do is try to give them that inspiring word. Like no matter what you do, if you fail once, you fail twice, you fail three times, no matter how many times you fail, just get back up and keep fighting because eventually they're going to get tired and they're just going to say, okay, well, let's just give them what they want. And, you know, just seeing how many other states who have banded together and protested and came out and showed up in numbers, they've been able to change a lot of things. And so that's just having each community understand that keep fighting no matter what, don't let these governmental actors or systems take you down because if you don't go vote for them, they're not going to win. You know, you have the power. Yeah, Sam, can you speak on any backlash you faced during any of these projects that y'all have done? And how did y'all keep going? Like, how did you keep the movement going? Yeah, so the San Marcos Police Officers Association, um, which is the local police shouldn't have unions, but that's another topic <laughs> for another day. They have been one of our most outspoken opponents since the early days, since site and release back in 2019 and 2020. Back then, they were attacking site and release from all angles. It got very racist very quickly. There was a local councilman, a Black man named Mark Rockymore, who had a, it was a Class D misdemeanor. I think it was some kind of assault charge, but it was, like I said, it was a Class C, which can be something as petty as shoulder tracking someone. And so... He was obviously one of the people, the head of the criminal justice uh, reform committee and someone who ran on criminal justice reform, very supportive of site and release, was kind of the champion of it on the dais. They found his mugshot and circulated it and posted it everywhere, posted on all their social medias. And then they created another graphic attacking the four council members who were the most likely to vote in support of site and release and the lead up to that vote are okay with marijuana related murders and they that was one talking point that they repeated over and over the marijuana murders and you know maybe if it was legal then we wouldn't have the gang violence that surrounds marijuana sales that's another topic for another day and that was one of their biggest talking points and so they are some a group that was showing up to council speaking out against site and release and then made themselves look really terrible time and time again with these ads that they would put in the newspaper and then they still lost and so we did notice that shortly after our new chief of police came to the city i think it was in early 2021 maybe mid 2021 we noticed that they quickly became much more quiet on social media as far as their attacks on mano amiga and this new chief of police is no better than any other cop but is just more I think, sophisticated in the way that he says things and when he says things. And I think that he knew that Simpo was not doing the police department any favors with their really ignorant outspokenness against um, Manamiga. And they actually also created a, I think it was in the lead up to our Night Out for Safety and Liberation event. Um, we were posting a lot of graphics in the lead up to that talking about how police don't keep us safe, how we need to redefine and reimagine what public safety means. It means 
um, housing, it means healthcare, it means mental health assistance, all those things, and it does not mean cops. They actually created a series on their Facebook and they announced it, tune in tomorrow, we're gonna have these posts deconstructing, or that's probably not the word that they used, but talking about how they were going to, I guess, invalidate a lot of Marami guest points. And so in response, our, our Jordan got on Facebook Live at the end of that day and responded to every single one of their posts and just, in, just incredibly ignorant posts that they were sharing. And so they were pretty quiet for a year or so there. And then recently they issued, we just voted to decriminalize marijuana as a result of a ballot initiative or petition initiative that Manomiga organized. And in the lead up to that vote, it was on the November ballot, Simpoa sent out mailers against Prop A and were telling people all over the city to vote against it. Ended up passing with 82% of the votes. Um, and so just shows, again, how their ideology does not represent the will of the people whatsoever. I think that, honestly, they do it to themselves a lot of the time. It doesn't take a whole lot of fighting back because uh, the things that they say are just so ridiculous. But they've been one of our opponents. And right now, we're actually working to repeal their contract. Um, we actually just did repeal their contract. And they're going to be forced to renegotiate it and include more reforms for accountability and transparency in the police department. So really exciting stuff we've got going on right now. That is amazing. Even through all the backlash, still keep moving. <laughs> That's what you got to do. You got to keep moving. Because if not, they'll win. And we can't let them win. Mm-hmm. Well, I thank you, Lady Sarah. Is there anything else you want to add? No, keep on fighting the good fight. I think, you know, it feels like a really challenging time. And especially in states like Texas, like North Carolina, there's a lot of really harmful bills at the state level. But when we look at the local organizing that's going on and some of the real transformative change that folks like y'all are, are winning, and that we can replicate in other places, there's a lot actually to be uh, hopeful about and to celebrate. So thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks for being an amazing partner all of these years and doing this work. And I'm just so excited for what's ahead. Yeah. Thank you, Vera, for all the hard work that you do. And Sam, y'all are doing some amazing work. I hope that maybe one day we can get together and, and do some mm -hmm. things together and just intersect because it just needs to go all across. The South needs to band together, period, because it's, it's just so mm -hmm. hard down here for us, for us in the South. So thank you, ladies. So thank you so much for having us on. Thank you. Y'all have a good one. You too. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.